Well, good morning. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you, please, to open them up to Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. Galatians 5, 13 through 26. We've been working our way through this, uh, well, through the fruit of the Spirit, because by this point, you've probably noticed we're not doing an in-depth study of this passage, but we're, we're working through the fruit of the Spirit and the implications of walking according to the Spirit and what that means. Now, the reason we keep coming back to this passage instead of, you maybe wonder, why don't we do a specific passage about joy or one about patience or about kindness? Well, the reason is because this passage puts the fruit of the Spirit, the, the living of the Christian life, in its proper setting. Because we are free in Christ, we're free to love. And not just love God, but love our neighbors. Well, the only way we can do this in a godly, God-honoring way is to be transformed into greater godliness. And that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you attempt, listen, if you attempt to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh, you will end up with the works of the flesh. And all of your best effort, it's only going to lead to backbiting and devouring one another. Isn't that true? I mean, how many times, how many times have you thought, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to go into this difficult conversation with the best possible attitude. And actually it results in only making the conflict worse. I think it happens more often than we realize. And we're upset we thought things were going to be different. And you wonder, what got in the way? What, what happened? I had the best of intentions here. What went wrong? Most likely, we went out in the power of the flesh. And all that the flesh can produce is enmity and strife and jealousy, which is why Paul tells us to Walk in the Spirit because walking in the Spirit puts to death the works of the flesh and produces the fruit of the Spirit. So as you draw near to God and you seek Him in His Word and as you pray for fruitfulness and as you strive to bear it, as you resist temptation, all of these things are walking in the Spirit. You'll find the flesh decreasing and a harvest of righteousness increasing. Isn't that a great thing? Doesn't that encourage us to, to realize and to know that there actually is a, a way that doesn't end in disaster and we're able to be reconciled and to love and to be restored? I mean, how often do you lament the works of the flesh and how they hurt you and hurt others and do things that you don't want to do? You wonder if we'll, you, you'll ever overcome them. Will I ever put this to rest? Well, the answer is yes, you can. Because if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so this morning, let's continue in our passage and see what it looks like to live according to the Spirit, specifically in faithfulness and humility, or faithfulness and meekness or gentleness. Galatians 5, 13 through 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve 
one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of Rage, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another envying one another well, let's pray Lord thank you for this morning thank you for your word I'm reminded it is a lamp unto our feet and a guide, Lord. We live in a world that is very grim and very dark. We live in a world that is very confusing. And we often find ourselves wondering, what should I do? And not in, in grand things, the course of our, how should I respond in this difficult conversation? How should I respond when this person I care about so deeply doesn't... They're, they're not feeling well. Lord, Your Word guides us in everything from the mundane to the grand because, Lord, You care about all of our lives. You've told us not to despise the day of small things, Lord, because You do not despise the day of small things. You store up Every tear that is shed by your saints, you've numbered the hairs on our head. You will hold us account to account for every idle word. Everything, Lord, in our lives matters because it matters to you. And I pray, Lord, that all of our lives would be aimed, every area, at pleasing you. And that we wouldn't be a people who are swept along by our, the, the cultural whims and waves, but that we would be a people who are strong and well-founded in You through Your Word. And I pray that this morning You would work that in Your people. That we would come out of the world. Come out of the influence of it that still lingers over us. And be wholeheartedly and undividedly seeking after You. It's in Your name we pray. Help us to order our lives according to Your Word. Amen. When historians look back 
at our time and they chronicle the traits that characterize us in the 21st century, there at the top of the list will be an all-encompassing interest in self-esteem. And under that, self-indulgence, self-improvement, self-assertiveness, self-expression, self-this-that, everything. These will be the defining characteristics of our time. An all-consuming obsession with self. And things like commitment, resolve, steadfastness and endurance, things like humility and perseverance will not be on the list, not even at the bottom. Because the world that we live in, because we live in this world, we are going to be touched in some way, some form or fashion by this self-idolatrous madness. And that's what it is. But for all of us, it's, it's a matter of how has this affected you, not has this affected you. We're like fish in the water. You think a fish knows that it's wet? Aristotle said, he said, if you want to know what wetness is, don't ask a fish. Because they're always surrounded by it. There's no point of reference. They just don't know. Or, or did you know that this very moment, the air around you is exerting pressure on your body, all over you? It is. But you're not aware of it at all. You don't know it's there. Why? Because it's so constant and so common. It's there all the time and eventually you don't notice it anymore. Right? It's, uh, it's like a strange smell at work or, or the noise of a fan. It doesn't take very long before you don't notice it anymore at all. And even if someone points it out, what's that, what's that smell? I smelled it when I walked in, but I don't smell it anymore. It just becomes part of the atmosphere. Well, in a world full of self-centeredness, self-centeredness that leads to a lack of resolve and a lack of convictions, it is impossible for believers some way to not be offended. I mean, if you jump in the water, you're going to get wet. If you live in this world, it is going to have an influence. And we need to be aware of this influence, pinpoint this influence, because it will rob you of joy and turn your hearts away from Christ. You know, John Piper in his book, uh, one of his biographies, he has a lot of biographies, one of them he has is about a man named Charles Simeon. Now, I doubt that many of you have ever heard of him, but he was a pastor at Trinity Church, Cambridge, and he endured a lot of difficulties from his congregation. He was known for one thing, that was that. They would, uh, the, the congregation would come in, they would lock the pews, chain them up, lock them up, so that if anyone came to hear him, they'd have to sit in the aisles. So uh, he had a rough go. But in that biography, Piper points out what I just said. And then he labors the point Right, that we, as a group of people, right, collectively, have very little commitment. We value what the world around us in many ways values. We're children of our age, whether we like it or not. We just are. 
And that incorporates into us certain things that are in the culture. And I think one of those that comes in is it makes us weak and unstable and brittle in our resolve and in our commitment and in our convictions. And we become emotionally fragile quitters. And if you want to put yourself to the test, well, just ask yourself, how do you react to criticism? Someone criticizes you, what are the first things that come through your mind? How do you respond when your hard work is not as valued as maybe you think it ought to be? What wells up in you when you don't feel appreciated like you think you ought to be appreciated? Well, if you're like most people, you say, well, fine. They don't They don't improve me. They don't appreciate me. They don't listen to me. I'm out. Find a new family, new spouse, new job, new church. Go there, have the same problems. Why? Well, it's at the root of this. What makes people drop out so easily? And I'm not talking about matters of doctrinal faithfulness and finding a church. I'm talking about I'm offended, so I'm heading out of here. It might surprise you that the reason people do this is very often on account of pride. Pride. We're a proud people, and we love being proud, and we feed pride the best that we can, and we do it all day long. And the food that pride feeds on is anything that has the word self attached to it. Pride is always saying more. It's always saying more praise, more possessions, more pleasure, more ease, more for me. And so if I find myself in a challenging situation, I find myself somewhere where I'm not achieving any kind of of self-actualization or self-realization, I'm not being all that I can be, and and the challenge that I'm facing, it doesn't directly benefit me. People will endure a lot if they perceive it'll benefit them. If it doesn't benefit me, who cares about commitment? I'm out. It's all about me. And when it's not, we quit. And sometimes we even believe it's for a noble cause when we quit, right? Because what could possibly be more noble than service to me? And so we're easily hurt. And our resolve breaks easily. Our marriages break easily easily right we mope and pout at the slightest disagreement and our faith and our joy they're they're as stable as the dried grass one gust of wind and they're gone very little perseverance at all it's not supposed to be this way god did not intend for his people to be emotionally fragile and being whipped to and fro. But He wants His people to, as He tells us in 1 Corinthians, to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's going to be hard for a lot of Christians to do without first breaking free from this, this anemic, easily exhausted, self-centered obsession that has gripped our society with a stranglehold. 
I think most Christians, if they reckon honestly, they do see this to one degree or another in themselves. And they don't like it. And the good news is God doesn't like it either. And He is working by His Spirit to get it out of His children and deliver them to make them strong. Right? Like a, what, what are some of the language that the Scripture uses? Like a rock in the sea that even though the waves be- beat and bash against it, it stands. Or a house, and when the storm comes, if it's founded on the Word, it doesn't fall. Or a tree that's, that's rooted down by the riverbed, and its leaf does not wither. That's what God wants for us. He wants His children to be strong. He wants you to have a, have a backbone. And there's two ways, primarily, that I think this is accomplished. That we are made into this kind of determined people. And it's by faithfulness and humility. Faithfulness and humility. Now, by faithfulness, I'm not talking about faith the gift from God by which we believe. That's not what's in mind here in Galatians. Here we're talking about the quality and the characteristic of faithfulness, right? The kind of thing that leads to commitment and resolve and loyalty and conviction and perseverance and steadfastness. That's what we're talking about. And God wants us to be this way because God is this way. I mean, how many times in the Scriptures do you read about the steadfastness or the steadfast love or the immutable, the unchanging nature of God? How many times do we hear just from the apostles that God is faithful? 2 Timothy 2.3, He remains faithful. 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, The Lord is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. On and on and on and on in Scripture, the faithfulness of God is exalted and held up before us to remind us that whatever God commits Himself to, He is committed to the end. God never changes. And because He never changes, He is the epitome of steadfastness and perseverance and faithfulness. His promises are true. They don't change. His word is faithful. You can trust it. His love is steadfast. It doesn't go anywhere. And as His children, He calls us to be the same. We are called to be faithful as He has been faithful toward us. And how do we do that? A good place to start is looking at what the Bible says and requires about these things. One of those places is the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes. And your no, no. That your yes be yes and your no be no. This is a call to steadfastness. Did you know that? Faithfulness to your own words. When you say something, you do it. Well, what if it's a lot harder than I expected? Psalm 15.4 A righteous man keeps his oath even when it hurts. Even when it's costly. You say, why is this so important? Why does Jesus say, don't use oaths, don't take oaths, just let your yes be yes and your no, no? Jesus tells us to do this because this is how God is. He doesn't need to be bound by an oath to keep His Word, right? His Word is always good. Because what does an oath signify? Right? It's, it's a stronger binding than just your words. Why do you need it? Why have oaths or contracts or, or the like? 
the only reason they exist is because people are dishonest and prone to not doing what they've said that they will do. When it gets harder than they, than they anticipated, they try to wriggle out of it, right? Shouldn't have signed their name. Our words ought to be enough. If we give our yes, we make every effort to keep it. That's a sign, a demonstration of faithfulness. And isn't the lack of this, isn't this one of the, one of the greatest frustrations that we face? That you need everything has to be on paper, doesn't it? A man's word is worthless, doesn't mean a thing. You, you say to somebody, yeah, but you said you would do it. Maybe some of you, you've been dealing in, uh, dealing in business contracts. This happens a lot more than, uh, than you might expect. Someone's word is not very good. And there's no integrity. We lament about this because we all know that we've lost something valuable as a people when integrity is no longer esteemed. You know, I remember the last election. This comes to mind because it's probably the, well, it's a good example of this. The conservative candidate, Aaron O'Toole, he campaigned for the nomination as a, as a genuine conservative. He won the nomination, and the moment the general election kicked off, he threw out every single principle that he espoused to get selected as the conservative nominee and campaigned the opposite of the way that he promised his party he would. And it was a horrific betrayal of confidence. And if the people in this country cared anything about integrity, you probably would have heard more about it. You probably wouldn't have a scandal-ridden prime minister in office if people cared about integrity. But he's not a man of his word. And he's proved it publicly in front of the whole country. And I doubt he is ever going to listen to this. But if he does, by some chance then, Mr. O'Toole, you're a coward and you ought to be ashamed for what you've done. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for betraying everyone who elected you like that. That kind of pragmatic thinking, that kind of inconsistency, that kind of flip-flopping, that has no place in the Christian life. And if you want to know whether or not you're bound to keep your word, you don't need an oath, you don't need a contract, you don't need witnesses. All you need to do is say yes or no, and that's enough. You've bound yourself by your word, and the only course of action really is to follow through with it, and it, even if it's costly. And that takes resolve, doesn't it? That takes faithfulness to your word. Or consider the word commitment. Very little of that around today. Just think of marriage and divorce. Matthew 19.6 So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. You want to know where people quit? Where people are unfaithful? Marriage. To their husbands, to their wives. There, there is, why? Because there is no concept that these problems and difficulties that every married couple faces, the, the normal human struggle, there is no conviction at all that they ought to be worked out and resolved, just abandoned and walked away from. Everything is too hard. 
You know, I remember when Amy and I went to Colorado after our wedding, we visited the Buffalo Bill Museum. Uh, it's up in the mountains. And I remember reading, it was uh, on the life of, of Buffalo Bill. He was a, an entertainer, a cowboy circus entertainer in the 1800s, 1900s. And I read on one of the plaques about his biography that he sought a divorce from his wife. They, they fought all the time. She, uh, she suspected he was unfaithful. He suspected her of trying to poison him. And on the little information plaque, it had written that, well, it was, it was actually written with exclamation points and capital letters and shock, but it was written by whoever penned it uh, that the judge denied the request. Can you imagine? He told them, work it out. A judge telling you that you are legally obligated now to show some steadfastness and to work out your marriage. Can't do whatever you want. Can't get a divorce. Actually have to be committed to the person that you're married to, even if you don't want to or don't like it. Can you imagine that? I hope you can imagine it. Because if you're married, you are legally obligated to work it out. But not by some appellate court justice, but by the judge of all of the universe. Be committed to your relationships. We're called to steadfastness in the faith. This is a repeated theme in the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't know who the book of Hebrews was written to. It was written to a group of Hebrews, obviously, where we don't know. But we do know from reading the book that they were a people who were wavering. They were in trouble. Pressure was beginning to rise. And they were considering going back to Judaism. They were going to put Christianity behind them, go back to their roots, Judaism was a protected religion in the Roman Empire. Let's just go back to that and be safe. They're in danger of falling away. And so four times in the book, they're told to hold fast. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Another one of those pictures of the faithfulness of Christ. He who has promised is faithful, so let us hold fast. What's that mean? It means hold tightly, right? Keep it and do not lose. Do not lose that confession, whatever you do. We're told to hold fast to our confession and to do so without wavering. What confession? Jesus Christ is Lord. The confession of the gospel of Jesus. And when it comes to the gospel, and when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't yield an inch. When it comes to the gospel, th there are certain hills in the Christian life to stand on and die on and not retreat from, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is one of them. That's faithfulness to His Word. That's holding fast to your confession. God is faithful, we're told, to fulfill His promises. We hold fast then to those promises in faith, knowing they will come to pass. Or Hebrews 4, uh, 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. There it is again. Hold fast to our confession. Why? Well, because we have an advocate. Because we have a great high priest who intercedes for us and all his intercession will be effective. The promises of God, because He is faithful, they're not going anywhere. So keep believing and do not fall away. 
Forgiveness, intercession, all of the saving works of Christ aren't going anywhere, so neither should you. You just have to hold out a little while until they come to pass. Or Hebrews 3.6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Again, we're told to hold fast to our confidence, our confidence in Christ. And listen, not momentarily, but to the end. Faithfulness, true faithfulness, listen, it, it doesn't have an expiration date. The only kind of faithfulness the Bible recognizes is faithful to the end. Anything less than faithful to the end, you know what it's called? It's called apostasy. Anything less than faithfulness that goes all the way is called falling away. You know, I think of the first chapter of Revelation. To every church, Jesus gives promises of reward, right? And He gives those promises to sustain the believers in their difficulties. And the promises, uh, in a way, they correspond to their present trials to make them more bearable, right? To those who are naked, he says, I promise you will be clothed in garments of righteousness kind of thing. And you can endure a lot better when you know something wonderful is waiting on the other side of the difficulty that you're facing, right? If there are a lot of people... Have you ever seen the show Fear Factor? Okay, there you go. People will endure a lot if they know there is a reward on the other side of their endurance. That's what Jesus is telling the people here in the, the churches in Revelation. But they aren't promised to everyone. They are only promised to those who overcome. The promises are only given to those who persevere until the end. Same thing in Hebrews 3, uh, 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. We have become partakers of Christ. But there's a condition. If we hold firm until the end, belonging, you say, I thought, I thought it was, yes, it is faith that saves us, but it's Christ that keeps us. And He will lose none of those who are given to Him. So you take that promise, Christ will lose none who have been given to Him. And then you see somebody who abandons Christ. What is the only logical conclusion? They were not given to Him. Otherwise, he would keep them. And those who fall away, those who do not hold fast to the confession, do not belong to Christ. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 15.2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold fast to the word. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Perseverance is a sign of real faith because it is the Lord who keeps us. Right? So if someone falls away, it wasn't real. First John, he says, they went out from us, but their going out from us proves that they were never of us. It wasn't real. It was empty. Paul says, it was in vain. Genuine faithfulness wrought in the heart by the Spirit does not turn back to the world. It can... It, uh, it can be afraid. It can seek the Lord for courage. It's not, you know, 
always at the very front of the, of the battle. But the one thing that genuine faith never does is retreat back to the world and stay there. You know, I think of Pilgrim's Progress. At the very end, all of the people, they're crossing the river death into the celestial city. And for some, the water's passable. They get in, they're, it's, you know, it's over their head, but it's calm and they can swim across. When Christian goes across, the water is splashing over his face, getting in his mouth. He doesn't know if he's going to make it. He's swimming with all of his might to get to the other side. Hopeful has to come and help him. He doesn't know if he's going to make it. Mr. Standfast, when he crosses the river, he puts his foot in and get the picture. He touches the water and it's only an inch deep. And he walks across as if it was on dry land. And everyone crosses the river differently, but they all get across. They all advance, even though some have much more confidence than others. And some believers are like that. They have faith. They believe. They're not, they're not going anywhere. The Lord has the words of life and they believe Him. But they're easily shaken. Sometimes they tremble and they need the help of those who are strong. And so holding fast, having integrity, having resolve, having steadfastness, it doesn't mean you never doubt and struggle forward. But what it does mean is you move forward and you hold your ground and you keep your word and you do not compromise whether you're fearful or not. This is the example of faithfulness set for us by God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's always comforting to know that Christ is our, the captain of our salvation. It, have you ever been in a job where the employer asked you to do something and it's not pleasant and you know that not only has the person asking you to do it never done it, they would be unwilling to do it even if they had to. Right? That's not how Christ is. He has done everything He has called us to do. And not only has He done it, but He has left us a perfect example to follow and promise that He will send His Spirit to come and be our guide. And so through Him, we endure. And how is He faithful? Every word from His mouth is true. He is the truth. Nothing He ever promised came to fail. Uh, promised failed to come to pass. He was faithful to His bride, the church, and He will be forever. He has integrity that cannot be matched. No one could bring any honest charge against Him. He believed the Word of His Father above the words of man, and He was faithful even unto death on a cross. And you know, maybe uh, through, you know, through, his, through His whole ministry, one of the things that surprises you when you read about the life of Christ in the Gospels is not once does He ever give the impression that maybe He might back out of this. You realize that? When the time came, He set His face as a flint towards Jerusalem. When His heart was troubled, did, did He waver? He, he didn't waver. Yes, His heart is troubled. What does He say? It's for this very reason that I came. And even in the, in the garden, as he is his wrestling, he's contemplating his suffering, and he, he seeks strength to endure it, he doesn't think about quitting. What does he say? He asks, if there is another way. Not abort the mission. If there is any other way, let's, let's do it that way. But if not... I will go, not my will, but yours be done. That's resolve. 
if the only way forward is the one that fills me with dread and anguish and subjects me to the wrath, your wrath against sin, O God, I am resolved to walk the path. And through it all, you, you see his exasperation in the Gospels, don't you? Never a hint, though, that Jesus isn't going to follow through with his mission. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's not easy, right? People don't appreciate him very much, even though he came to lay his life down for them. His best friends don't get it. His work environment is a little toxic compared to what he was used to. And yet he goes forward with a conviction and an intensity of resolve that is unmatched by the best and bravest of anyone who has ever lived. And He is our example. And He has given us the same Spirit to enable us to walk the way He walked. And for weak, fragile, prone-to-wander quitters like us, what an example. And what a promise. It's the same Spirit that empowered Him at work in us. If you try and stand on your own, of course you'll fail. But if you walk in the Spirit, you will be faithful to the end. You will be able to hold firm, keep your word. You'll be able to have integrity, work out a difficult marriage. You'll be able to believe your confession wholeheartedly and be faithful to the end. And the Spirit will be working to create this in you as you aim to keep in step with Him. But it isn't just that the Spirit creates faithfulness. He does it by working in you conviction. Because conviction is what makes people faithful. This would be a good place to end, but if I ended here, I'd, uh, I'd be giving you the what and not giving you the how. Which can lead to a lot of disappointment. So, bear with me a little longer. Conviction is what makes people faithful. And I don't mean conviction of sin. I mean conviction of principle. Conviction that the Word of God is true. And what is conviction? Is it just, I believe something? Maybe it's just a, a strong belief? It's more than that. Listen, to put, it, to put it simply, conviction is a belief in something that is more important and more worthy than even your own life. A conviction is something that you hold to so strongly that you would rather die for it than deny it. You believe you will be held accountable for your words. You want to please the Lord. And so you keep your word even when it hurts. You want to please the Lord. And you believe Him. So you work out your marriage instead of throw your marriage out. You believe with absolute conviction, total certainty that Christ is the only way and you have a better inheritance coming, so you're faithful, even unto death. And you can't have conviction without humility. Faithfulness requires humility. Because humility uh, before God, pride is the opponent of this and pride will be the the slayer of faith and the preventer of humility pride looks out for number one 
Right? Maybe you've heard the expression, God look out for number one. That's bad advice. That's proud advice. Pride, pride has a, a confident assurance that it knows what is best. Pride says, there is none beside me. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. You say, I am and there is none beside me. And listen, why, why are we going to pride now? Because you cannot have a conviction stronger than your own life and you cannot have a commitment stronger than your own well-being if the only thing that matters is you. If you're number one, all that matters is number one. And if life is all about getting as much out of it for yourself as you can, anything that would hinder that or imperil that has no place for you. You're just going to go on doing whatever is convenient and comfortable and you'll never have convictions about anything. Which is why political leaders flip-flop. Because they don't care about integrity, they care about winning an election. That's why people flip-flop. We care more about comfort, peace, ease than we do about conviction. And you say, what does this have to do with gentleness? Well, because we aren't talking about gentle as having a kind disposition here. The word is translated as meekness and it means humility. Faithfulness and humility. And it's the opposite of pride. That's what's in view here. And the Holy Spirit drives pride out of people and brings in humility. What is humility? Well, consider what it means to be proud. There are two kinds of pride. And the first... Let's call it high pride or arrogance. And everyone knows what this looks like. This is probably what you think of when you think of pride. right? Boastful, smug, brash, self-assured, maybe overly confident, a high opinion of self. It's, it's, uh, it's the invictus. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. It's not a good poem. Pride. An arrogance that elevates oneself to the supreme position. Makes God in the image of man. By the way, this is the goal of a lot of children's education. And not so much in school, usually in the media. Right? They need to believe in themselves. They can do anything they want. They need to build up their self-esteem so they realize how special and how self-important they are. How many times do you have to deal with that, parents? All this does is leave society with a bunch of self-obsessed, self-important narcissists. <laughs> when I was in college, I had a roommate, and, uh, and he was very much in love with himself. And uh, somebody called him a narcissist, and he said, <laughs> he, he came back into the, into the dorm room and said, so-and-so called me a narcissist. And I said, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, I, I like to think if I was in Greek mythology, I'd be more of a Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> Completely unaware of what he thought of himself. Right? Proud. High thoughts and high opinions of me. But then you have a kind of low pride that manifests itself in self-pity. And this is often the result, this is what happens 
when you make life all about self and self-esteem. People are sad, people are down on themselves, people lament their situations, and they have ample amounts of pity reserved only for themselves. Why? They're disappointed narcissists. Most don't even realize it, but the problem is the same. They are proud, having high thoughts about themselves. And when those around them, they don't realize how wonderful, how, how sincere and how great they actually are when, they're, when their friends don't see this in them, when others do not love them as much as they love themselves, they sulk and woe is me and indulge in pity and they're distressed. Nobody thinks as much of me as they ought to think of me. It's all pride. It's all pride because the focus is squarely on the self. It's turned inward, not outward. And in a supposed quest to make people confident by turning them inward and teaching them to love themselves and to see themselves as, as, as supreme, as the most important, Ironically, in that quest to make people confident, they have actually become proud and incredibly fragile. Well, the answer to all of this is humility. Humility is where pride finds its grave. Now, not by thinking much of self or less of self, but by not thinking of self at all. Right? Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And so humility isn't boastful. It's not self-assured. It's not arrogant. But humility also isn't self-pitying, sulking either. When somebody rejects your idea, oh, you don't think my, I think it was the greatest idea in the world. You don't think my idea is the greatest idea in the world. You must not think very much of me. I think a whole lot of me. Now we've got a problem. Some people get brash and angry. Some people just sulk. Both come from the same place. Humility doesn't do that. Humility is not overly concerned with self, not overly concerned of its own opinions, not overly concerned about the opinions of others, but instead is primarily concerned about others. That's humility. I don't need to be the only one who's right. I'm not going to sulk if no one likes my idea. I recognize that others have value and valuable input and I can learn from them. I'm, I'm not number one. In fact, I'm looking to others as better and more important than myself. It's going to change how you think about other people. Right, if you're not thinking about self, your concern isn't going to be, well, how does this affect me? It's going to be, how can I serve others? And this is why the word gentleness and humility are so linked together. It's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to be gentle when you're proud. Because if you're proud, full of love for self, you're always going to be trying to defend yourself and proclaim your own importance and convince others how great you are. It's really difficult to get offended when you're not overly concerned about yourself or about your own opinions or about what others think of you. Let me give you an example of this. The most humble man in the Old Testament. Do you know who he is? 
Moses. Numbers 12, 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the other people who were on the face of the earth. Probably not written by Moses, that one line. Now how does this humility express itself in Moses' situation? It expresses itself in gentleness and in steadfastness. What's happening? Moses is being oppressed again, opposed again. And this time it's not by the people. It's not by the Levites. It's not by a couple of tribes from the tribe of Reuben. This time it's from his own family. Miriam and Aaron. His sister and his brother. And they ask, Moses, why do you get to be in charge? Why do you get to lead? We're all as important as you. Who gave you the right? Moses, what makes you so special? Well, the Lord speaks and intervenes on Moses' behalf and calls out his siblings and he comes down in the pillar of smoke and rebukes them. When the Lord departs, Miriam was leprous, head to toe. Now, how would you react? I want you to put yourself in Moses' shoes for a second. Someone is, they're, they're giving you a hard time. You know they're wrong. They are wrong. God said they're wrong. But they're, 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 they're coming at you full force, right? You're a fraud. You're not worthy to lead. Who do you think you are? And so you pray. And God shows up. And He strikes them with the skin disease in order to vindicate you. You think you'd revel in that just a little bit? You might be feeling a bit smug, right? Don't mess with me kind of attitude. You should have known better. That's not what Moses does. Moses is exceedingly humble. And so he's not threatened by Miriam or Aaron. He knows that he has been made the leader of this people. He knows because he has been told by the Lord Himself. And because he is not threatened, he is gentle towards her. When he sees that she's leprous, Moses falls to the ground and he begins to cry out to God that he would forgive her and restore her. Verse 13, it says, Oh, please God, Moses' prayer. Please God, heal her. Please. There's no malice there. There's no arrogance there. There's just a genuine concern for the woman who moments ago was opposing him. Moses is steadfast in his confidence in the word of the Lord. And he is humble. Therefore, he is able to deal gently with Miriam. And so we ought to humble ourselves so that we can be gentle towards others. We ought to humble ourselves so that we can hold fast and keep our word and strengthen our commitments. We need to humble ourselves to grow in faithfulness. There's one more way that this happens, and I'll close with this. Pride isn't something that can just be suppressed. It's not something that can be warded off or resisted. There are things we do resist. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Flee from sexual immorality. There are things that we resist and flee from. But pride is something that has to be killed. If you wound it, it'll be just that, wounded pride. It must be killed. And for order, uh, in order for pride to be put to death, you and I need to die 
to ourselves. Self-care, self-love, self-esteem, they do not set anybody free. They enslave them to self, and that master self is never satisfied. People are enslaved to themselves and what others think of them and what they think of themselves. And it's, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't liberate anybody. But dying to self is one of the most liberating things a human being can experience in Christ. I mean, how much bondage are you into your own pride? Right? To what others think about you. To what you think of yourself. Do you know the irony of that? It promises freedom and delivers slavery. It promises life will be better. Life will be more abundant. You want to live a good life? Get more for you. And in the end, it robs it all away. You know, the first time I read through the Bible when I, was, when I was 16, one of the things that struck me over and over and over again, it was like a sledgehammer driving the point home, was that whatever this, kind, this, this Christianity is about, new believer, didn't know much, read through the New Testament, whatever Christianity is about, it's not about me. Because if I want to be a part of it, the first thing I have to do is die. And it was the complete opposite of everything that I had been hearing. Because I've been hearing I need self-esteem. need to live for me. need to have more love for me. And here, death to self. I didn't know exactly what it meant, but whatever it meant, I knew it was incompatible with what I had been hearing was the only path to true fulfillment and satisfaction. Self-esteem and dying to self are not compatible ways of living. One is the path to abundant life. One is the path to death. Which one? Listen to the words of Christ in the four Gospels. Mark 8, 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospel will save it. Luke 9, 24. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 17, 33, Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. John 12, 25, Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Matthew 10, 38 and 39, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25 and 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. Take up your cross. What's that mean? Jesus could have told them just the same. If anyone wants to follow me, he must sit in the electrical chair, put the little cap on his head, strap himself in, and follow me. You want to follow Christ? It costs your life. For whoever wants to save his life, I'm not going to follow Christ, that's too costly. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way to live, the only way to find your life, the only way to preserve your life, right, to find yourself, is to lose your life 
for Him. To give your life, all of it, to Christ. Your ambitions, your desires, your future belongs to Him. Your thoughts, your opinions of yourself, your concerns, your only concern has to be what does the Lord think of me? All the concerns of self have to die. It's the only path to abundant life, death to self. And it's so counter to everything we hear and have been taught and maybe even think. To find your life, you have to lose. It's like holding water in your hands. Right? Open them up and you'll have a bowl full. Water in your hands. But what happens the tighter you squeeze and cling to it? The more tenacious, tenaciously you cling to and hold on and squeeze on to your life, the more of it you lose. And when you open up your tight fist, you find it empty. No life. So, if you want to live... If you want to save your life, if you want life in abundance, then take your life in this world and your well-being and your comfort and your ambitions and your desires and hold on to them loosely, not being overly concerned when they are taken away. If you give your word, and it's going to be costly to fulfill it, so what? You're dead to yourself and alive to Christ. If your marriage is difficult, you're dead to yourself. And a corpse doesn't too much care if its toes get stepped on every now and then. Right? You can't offend a corpse. Go out into the graveyard and try. Right? You can be as rude and as cruel with your words as you want. You're not going to offend anybody. They're dead. That's how we're called to be to ourselves. Listen, this is not a bad thing. When Jesus said this is the path that leads to life, He meant it. It is a liberating thing. Think about it. How would, you, how would it be if no offense against you stirred you up or disturbed your peace? Wouldn't that be freeing? You're never going to get angry again. You'll be able to respond in kindness and in gentleness. Have peace. Answer calmly. You do that by dying to self. And that doesn't come from self-esteem. It comes from death to self. And if you do that, say, Lord... Maybe you don't know what it means. Lord, just help me to die to myself. You will be liberated to love and liberated to have peace and liberated to be faithful and have convictions. Why? Because I care about something else more than my own comfort now. Because I'm not number one. The Lord's number one. And I would rather... That's why people were burned to the stake in the past. Because of their convictions to the Lord. And they loved the Lord and His Word and His truth and His Gospel more than their own lives. You want to be gentle? All of these things and you want to finally understand what it means to live? Surrender your life to Christ. All of it. And then, and only then, will you truly be alive. 
Because life and life in abundance is found nowhere else but in the Lord Jesus Christ. So lay down your life. Take up your cross. Follow Him. It will not be easy. And it will never disappoint. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, You put Your finger always on our deepest our deepest needs. Lord, You're not afraid to put Your finger on the place where we just want to lock it up and hide it away and pretend it isn't even there. Lord, You are a good physician who gives us bad news in order to save our lives. And we thank You, Lord, that You know us better than we know us, that You know what we need. We thank You that You are courageous and told us things 2,000 years ago that would rub this 21st century people all the wrong ways. And You told us this because You love us. Because You want us not to be swept up in a lie that cannot deliver, but in Your truth that is steadfast and immovable because You want us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Thank You, Father, for all of Your goodness. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the conviction of truth. And I pray, Lord, that all of us here would leave this morning with less of self and more of You that our feet would be that much firmer in our convictions, that we would be that much gentler to others, that we would be a little bit or a lot more willing, Lord, to sacrifice meaningless trifles and temporary pleasures for an eternal weight of glory that comes from Your hand for those who persevere to the end. Help us, Lord to be faithful, to be humble, to be gentle. Help us, Lord, to be like Your Son, Jesus Christ, and work in us by Your Spirit to make us into His image. Amen.